Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's guest is my friend, Stephen Kotler. I am honored and privileged to call Stephen a friend. He is one of the most prolific, prominent writers, journalists, and investigators this world possesses, and I'm very grateful that he exists. He's got a ton of New York Times best-selling books. He's been published in anywhere you could shake a stick at, New York Times, LA Times, Wired, I'm just reading off a list, GQ, all over the place. I really value Stephen immensely, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. I want to thank you guys for leaving reviews on wherever you listen to this. So if you're on your phone or whatever, scroll down, press the subscribe button so you get each week's episodes. And um, if you do leave a review, good chance I'll read it like this one. I'm going to read one. I'm just going to pick a random one. This is from Michael Unbroken. Michael Unbroken says, great podcast. I just want to take a moment and say thank you for creating such an impactful podcast. I believe that we all have a voice that deserves to be heard. Thank you for putting this into the world. Be unbroken. Michael Unbroken. So look up Michael Unbroken out there. Uh, if you want to leave a review, leave your handle. I'm happy to read on here. Probably get some random misfits stumbling into your profile. And that's it. That's all. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get to it with my guy, Stephen Cutler. Thanks so much for making time to do this again. Stephen Cutler. It's nice to see you. Eric. It's good to see you, man. Last time, I think the last time was the last time I saw you was it the flow genome thing with with Jamie in Colorado, Maybe. or was there a time? I think we that? saw. I, I th- now I think we saw each other once after that. Um, well, it's always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure, but it's been a <laughs> it's been since it's definitely pre-COVID. Is, is all I can tell you. One of the things in your most recent book, The Devil's Dictionary uh that you touch on that i think is interesting and borderline contentious is the concept of the way you described it is, is species die off and particularly of the, the human species i presume uh, among other among other species well i was I mean, species die off i was talking about extinction rates right right now 50 50 to 70 percent of all species on earth have gone extinct over the past 40 years yeah so species die off the rate at which species are going extinct is now a thousand times greater than it's ever been. I mean, obviously species go extinct throughout evolution, but it's a thousand times greater than normal. And if, you know, we're not careful, we're going to lose most of the species on earth by the 21st century. And um, if that happens, our species will definitely not survive. We cannot, the, the web of life is so tightly woven that if that level of species die off, it would take down all the ecosystems in the world climate change being one of those, right? Climate regulation is one ecosystem service. There's like 36 of them. But if species collapse, ecosystem services collapses, the environment collapses and our species would die off as well. Do you have any perspective on the human species die off and, and, and birth rates essentially like collapsing by, by year 2050? Have you heard any, any of that, that stuff? I've seen those numbers and I, in a sense, like the, to me that, thank God, that, that those numbers are going down. There's been a long argument going on for years about what is the carrying capacity of, of the earth, right? How many, how many humans can we support, support, support sustainably? And it's a moving target because our technology changes the equation all the time. But, you know, there were some conservative estimates done not too long ago that, you know, put it around 2 billion. We're pushing seven to nine, certainly, 
based on how we currently can live. And what you look at the thresholds, we've we're massively exceeded the limit currently. And the number, the single most important thing you could do for the planet, though this is massively controversial, is not have children right now. Hmm. Um, and it, nobody wants to, people don't like saying it out loud, but you know, at this point, until our technology could catch up to our problems, every time a child is, you know, you're, you're, you're choosing human life over plants, animals, and ecosystems. That it's, it's a direct trade at this point. And the numbers are really clear on that. The data is really clear on that. I'm not actually saying anything that's factually controversial. And it's, it's just usually problematic when you talk about sustainability, right? That's, that's what we, in a sense, try to mean that people are not at placing the planet and what it can sustain. Yeah. In your book, The Devil's Dictionary, you bring up a concept of the, the M trackers or empathy trackers as an individual that has this wild capacity to be able to, to feel into not just other people, but also plants and animals and things of the sort. Is that, is that correct that you can feel into so, all, all living sentient beings or it's just about people? So no, it, it is also the lion's or the protagonist is an M tracker and he has a wildly expanded sense of empathy thanks to a genetic mutation. So he feels uh, what is known to scientists as cross species empathy. So he feels empathy for all humans, of course, but also for plants, animals and ecosystems. And his empathy isn't just individual. It also extends culturally. Now, I want to say that like that is not as particularly outlandish as it might sound for a couple of different reasons. One. We have known for a while that every, most every generation tends to be much more empathetic than the previous generation and earlier. So when they, um, Gen X, you're a millennial, when they measure empathy in millennials, they found that the you know, empathy is a, a characteristic that develops over time in humans. Like we hit our peak in our 50s, um, or at least my generation did. You guys actually had the empathy my generation had in our 40s and 50s in your 20s and 30s hmm. so empathy is expanding over time naturally simultaneously i work with the, my work with the flow research collective we work on flow flow amplifies a tremendous amount of skills including in them empathy and what's known as ecological awareness or nature relatedness or cross-species empathy which is the ability to to feel empathy for plants animals and ecosystems it widens our sphere of caring and this happens naturally not just in flow it happens in a lot of altered states of consciousness psychedelic states will also expand nature relatedness and sort of this kind of cross-species empathy so i just took all of this turned it up to 11 and put it all inside a character so i could you know live in that world and, and, and see things from his perspective. A, a curious structural question how does one measure empathy of a generation and compare generations I, I feel like i would be like you know I, no that's I, a I, for, so i that's a really great question i can i can tell you like some of the work they've a lot of it's been done but uh, they started looking at it, the harvard adult development project so that was george valiant and sort of that was some foundational stuff and, and then the harvard negotiating school took a look at it but i don't actually i have not like i know it's a there are psych there are surveys and questionnaires and things like that and standardized questionnaires um psychological tools that they're using but i haven't actually looked at it mm. so I, i've seen the results i haven't actually now i'm really curious because of yeah, course i'm good. talking about it out loud so i feel like an idiot that i've not actually looked at some of the some of the actual instruments so i'm gonna look and all i'm thinking of is the voight comp tap test in blade runner 
right? Which is a, <laughs> which is a scenario, which is an empathy test in Blade Runner all, that they use in Blade Runner to determine if somebody's a human or not. Well, the empathy thing is, is I think it's, it's such a foundational component to living a good life and also a life of longevity. Because if one lacks empathy, you can kind of, things can function for a little while, but eventually the wheels start to fall off. If you lack that compassion and empathy and understanding for the, the feelings and sensations and, and thoughts and expressions of, of the people around you, as far as like a team or a community or a tribe, but then also having that empathy for like you're discussing in the, in the book, like, like for the, the planet and for animals and for, you know, the, the varied species, because ultimately we're all integrated. And so yep. if we're in this kind of narcissistic vacuum bubble of ourselves, and it's just about consumption that can, you can run that story for X amount of months or years or decades, but eventually you start to burn out if we lack that, that connection with the others. There's, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So how does a person start to cultivate empathy, empathy? In, in, a, in a world that is, from my, <laughs> my conception, highly individualistic, which I would, I would kind of think that in a way our empathy is diminished because of the, the trend towards individualism. Now, obviously that's inaccurate, statistically speaking, but I guess just the question is how does one cultivate empathy? So, I mean, there are three, three I mean, one, Spending time in in flow, spending uh, d- tends to do it, and many altered states of consciousness tend to do it sort of automatically. It's part of what happens, mm-hmm. so that's part of the answer. Loving kindness meditation, which is at the heart of uh, most Tibetan Buddhist practice, is and has been extremely still well studied uh, scientifically by Richie Davidson and his team at the University of Wisconsin with Dan Goldman. Um, at Harvard, uh, they've done tremendous amount of work on, on loving kindness meditation and exactly, you know, compassion inducing meditation and how that works on empathy. And um, actually, in terms of expanding empathy, it works fairly quickly as well. We're seeing that. And by the way, the flow stuff is not, I don't mean it metaphorically, we've been working uh, at the Flow Research Collective for probably a couple of years now with various law enforcement agencies all, all across America, where the police know that if they can't kind of, that empathy is, the empathy is really important for, for how they want to police going forward, but it's not what cop culture taught them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're, we've been training a lot, a lot of law enforcement in flow. One, the peak performance helps them, makes them better at their job, but the empathy along the way, also makes them better at their job. So we're seeing this, you know, developed sort of what you could call tactical empathy. And that's definitely, you know, that's definitely starting to happen. Loving kindness meditation will do it. Uh, Any reframing will do it. Uh, You know, it's interesting. Here's a simple exercise because so many people have dogs. One of the things that sort of most people, you know, my wife and I have, have run a dog sanctuary and done hospice care and special needs work with dogs for for a very long time you know the shelter shelter system in america is is overrun they euthanize the numbers go up and down but it's roughly eight million dogs a year in shelters and what most people don't realize is that dogs generally have like working human vocabulary forget a dog vocabulary human vocabulary of between like 60 and 400 words depending on how smart they are and and then a, and a but number of other factors, they have all the same basic six core emotions that all mammals have. 
and they have all the same human social emotions. In fact, they have most of our social emotions more well-developed. Dog can face read emotion off humans' faces better than humans can, and so forth. So essentially, a dog is not much different than a like hyper-socially aware three or four-year-old child. So we are essentially euthanizing eight million three to four-year-old children. Uh, a year, if you're measuring by intelligence and emotions and social consciousness and all the things that you would, you know, and ability to feel pain and like all that stuff in humans that makes things for like cruel, unusual punishment, same thing. So all I tell people is one simple way is when you're interacting with the dogs in your life, you're interacting with a person. Like dogs are people too, if depending on how you want to frame it. And if you start thinking that way when you're interacting with the dogs in your life and thinking, oh, wow, I like this should be an equal rights situation. That alone will start to just reframe how you think about the animals and start to develop empathy. It's just a little cognitive reframing based around fact. This is like really what's going on in this relationship. And uh, it, you know, you start thinking about equality and empathy as the result. There, you know, there's a lot to be said for walk a mile in somebody's moccasins. And, you know, there's also, if you, there's an entire uh, department at Stanford right now that is developing really amazing ways to use virtual reality uh, to develop empathy. They've got VR paradigms. The first one was uh, so you could be a homeless black woman on the streets in Baltimore. Um, uh, 40, I think she was about 40 or 50 years old. So you could like pour in into this avatar and it was deadly effective. Um, they used it for racism. There's a bunch of uh, VR stuff designed for cross pieces, empathy and empathy for the planet and things along those lines. So we're seeing um, um, there's a there's technological solutions being developed as well. So um, I think a lot of people, you know, your statement earlier that like it's the superpower, right? Like if you don't like if we don't have it, we have. We have huge problems and with it, we gain so much. And I think society is starting to really wake up to that fact. So that I think there's a, a plethora of tech net tools and technologies at this point that can work on it. Yeah, it seems like it's almost a figuratively, it's like a nutrient to be in a, with some level of regularity to be in like a quote unquote flow state or some, or maybe you could say like in a state of awe, you know, where you have like the, the, the experience of just like, you know, your, your hairs stand up on edge, pilo erection, and you're just like, oh, like life. Oh. You get out of that gear to-do list, you know, state of doing mode. And I, I wonder, you know, from your perspective, putting so many, you know, years of, of research into it, what do, what do you feel structurally is the value of the flow state or maybe say a state of all or maybe you could say a state of like ego temporary boundary dissolution you know where you you merge with with other I, I might be conflating a lot of different ideas that are maybe disparate and separate but you know um yeah i i mean i think you're asking the question if i could paraphrase for you and you tell me if i'm right or wrong mm -hmm. Are altered states of consciousness good for us? Yeah. Right. You're you're getting at a whole bunch of things that happen in a batch of different altered states of consciousness. And um which we're terrified of largely, which is interesting. Maybe not yes, we I can't I speak mean, for everyone, but I feel like there's at least for me in my life, I'm like, oh, like I don't want to lose myself. I um that's interesting. I uh I well 
I, first of all, the, we know the answer is yes, especially from flow. That yes, there's a huge boost in peak performance and you know, a bunch of cognitive skills get amplified and a bunch of physical skills get amplified. But we know that the neurochemicals that underpin flow reset the nervous system and um, boost the immune system. You, you said earlier, I believe, that, that flow is critical for longevity, and, and you couldn't be more right. Um, it's, it's really the foundational component in peak performance aging. It's a foundational. All the blue zone research suggests that you know, one of the keys to healthy aging is live with passion, purpose, and regular access to flow, um, for sure. So that's fairly well established. Peak performance aging, which is sort of the new field that I've been um, involved in a lot, which is is really about performing at our best much so much later in life. That also uh, demands flow along the way. Other altered states of consciousness, you know, the psychedelic states. Um, I think that you know, I think there there are individual. I think people can run amok with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is what I think. Like to put it bluntly, which is not to say um, <clears throat> I do think they can be extraordinarily useful. I don't know if they are as extraordinarily useful as, you know, certain people are, are playing with them, but that's not to say, like, I went through a very long psychedelic period of experimentation in my own life and, and did that for a very, very long time as well. So maybe that's the nature of psychedelic exploration. And, you know, as Robin Card Harris says it from Imperial College of London, you know, it's, sometimes it's incredibly useful to shake the snow globe. Right. I think, you know, there's downsides to ego dissolution because when the ego comes back online, whether it's after flow or after uh, a psychedelic state or a trance state, um, it tends to kind of roar back, right? Like it goes away and then it tends to come back and you, you know, there's a lot of emotional responsibility that I think comes with playing with altered states because of that. But yeah, I think it's really good for us and really important, foundational to creativity for sure. Well, there can be a bit of friction in the, if you go through some type of say a near death experience or maybe some, maybe some really powerful breath work experience or maybe some psychedelic experience or fill in the blank thing that does start to create that, that ego dissolution type state that many people have experienced to come back into the previous structure of the snow globe you know, with this new concept of who I am or who I may be or who I thought I was, there's a lot of integration that is immensely valuable. And I think that that's kind of, that's like the, that's the piece that a lot, yeah, the piece. piece, I like, so the way here's, here's where it goes so wrong, goes wrong with flow, goes wrong with all these altered states is that people, and I think there's, I think it's the like, I think the new age community, and I'm using new age as a, not the spiritual community today, but like that, that new age movement that came up in the eighties and the nineties, I think they, they played fast and loose with certain facts. And I think it's sort of done damage afterwards. And, and sort of one of the, one of the things that you get out of these states and you sort of, you, you, it blows the ego up, right? There's a lot of like narcissism and, you know, that's that stuff that comes after it. I mean, sometimes surviving a psychedelic experience produced that like heroic, I, I, like I came through something or flow is, oh my God, look what I just did, what I'm capable of now. And that's, some of that is amazing, but you can't take like the ego stroke, the, the, the arrogance seriously. You have to know that that's a dopamine addled, manic, artificially inflated, you know, feeling it's why, Burning Man on the ticket says, look, don't make any life-changing decisions for, you know, 30 days after the festival. And we tell 
we tell everybody who works for the Flow Research Collective, the order of experience is inspiration, right? Have your big altered state, ego dissolution, inspiration, experience, research, communication, publication, meaning like have your have your insight, break your insight through your altered state experience that's going to happen, then go research it, figure out if you're right, then put it out as in a book form or as a paper so other smart people can hammer on it, can see what you thought, get it sort of peer reviewed out there. And only then after that's all that's happened, then communicate it to others as if it was something real and true. Right. And that's the order. And too often in uh, in all these worlds, what you see is like inspiration and no, no, I'm going to immediately change my life and tell others. And that's actually a fairly, you know, that's not the healthiest approach because you need the integration. You need the research. I want to take a moment and share something that is absolutely going beyond my expectations. That is supplementing with Ketone IQ from HVMN. It simulates a similar sensation that one would get from an extended fast. That sensation of mental clarity, focus, like a, a, a flow state. I find it to pair incredibly well with any type of nootropic supplement or caffeine. I really love it with coffee in the morning. I'll have it as a separate shot. And after drinking the stuff, you are not hungry like it cuts hunger for the next four to six hours and i uh, feel just you feel clear it's very nice it's very pleasant uh, they have a six million dollar contract presently with the u.s special operations command because the u.s special operations finds this stuff valuable so i think you guys will like it as well if you want to get a 20 percent discount you go to ketone-iq.com use promo code align 20 for 20% discount. That's ketone-iq.com. Use promo code align20 for 20% discount. Ketone is spelled K-E-T-O-N-E-I-Q.com. Promo code align20. We'll take a moment and share an exclusive offer only to Align Podcast listeners. That is a free bottle of Masszymes from Buy Optimizers. Masszymes is a powerful, best-in-class enzyme supplement that improves digestion, reduces gas and bloating, and provides relief from constipation. After you take Masszymes, you may notice that you no longer feel bloated after meals and that your belly feels flatter. And if you have a leaky gut, Masszymes could reduce gut irritation and help you absorb more nutrients. Like I said, this free bundle offer, it is a bundle because they're also including three books, uh, Sick to Superhuman, Ultimate Carnivore Cookbook, and Plant-Based Delights. There are absolutely no strings attached. You get your stuff, you pay for shipping, and uh, that's it, that's all. So you can go over to masszymes.com slash alignfree. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash alignfree to get your exclusive free product bundle. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this stuff. I really love using Masszymes myself. I have it sitting in my refrigerator now and I use it quite regularly. I think it's great stuff and you get it for free. So enjoy that masszymes.com slash align free. Yeah. I wonder in your own life, have you experienced many like identity transitions, identity deaths type experiences? Like do you, have you had succinct chapters in your life of like, I thought I was this and then I realized I was that. And then I thought I was that. And then I realized I'm something else or has it kind of been a blend? No, I, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I feel like I've um, become someone different about once every 10 years, mm. um, but it's not like it's a, it's a continuous evolution, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a clear break. And this is not 
outlandish adult development theory sort of shows the same thing, right? You go through these major gateways of adult development roughly every 10 years, and there are challenges that like you have to solve the gateway by age 30 if you want to pass through it is the crisis of identity, right? It's usually going to take you about till 30 to figure out exactly who you are, right? In your 40s, it's what economists now call match fit, right? You've got to figure out how to align what it is you do for a living with your strengths and your values and, you know, and, and who you are as a person. Um, and at 50, you have to forgive those all who have done you wrong. Like these are gateways that we move through. And if we move through them, we do become somebody different. Like, and we do the brain changes in, in sort of foundational ways. I mean, there were, I, you know, there was, I started out as a journalist. I thought I was, you know what I mean? I thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And then my industry went completely, disappeared completely. And I moved strictly into book writing. And then I, you know, created an animal sanctuary. And then I built a flow research company. And then I built another, you know what I mean? And like each of those has been, I've been a different human being for all of it, but like, you know, I've started 22 companies along the way or been involved in 22 different startups. So it's not like the entrepreneurial stuff came out of nowhere. It just got really visible because a lot of the startups I was involved in, you know, back in the day failed like a lot of startups do yeah. kind of thing. It feels like the there is value in having a getting to the place where you do feel stable in your identity and, and who you are and your sensation of purpose and your value in the world and all those things in order to um, kind of move up the, the steps or the hierarchy to come to a place where you actually can be a responsible custodian for the plants and the animals and the earth and the environment and the, the kind of the other aspects of, of us, essentially, because well, it's, it's all interconnected. So it's interesting, Eric. It's, it's interesting. I hear what you're saying, um, and it might be in line with something you mentioned earlier about individuality. And the, and the one thing I want to say is there, those are interesting ideas. and you know, like factually untrue. We are not on the earth. We are of the earth. We are sure. already like equal with plants and animals and equal ecosystems. Sort of empathy for all the idea is in a sense trying to show us what is actually already true, which is interesting, not the way most people think about it, but it's a web of life, right? You can't pull out one strand. The whole thing starts to fall apart. And so it's an interesting idea. Like I hear what you're saying and you're not wrong about these identity points, but from a factual perspective, what we mean by that is actually wrong, right? Cause you can't be human in and fully yourself in absence of plants, animals, and ecosystems. First of all, you are an animal and you're woven into the web of life. It's an interesting question. And there, but there's a whole, and there's a whole side of psychology, eco-psychology and, you know, 50 years of research that looks at like, why this is factually true and yet humans don't fundamentally understand it well i think i my mind like most people's at this point would be in some sense like a maybe victims too strong of a word but at least like influenced or product of cartesian philosophy and dualism and separation and newtonian physics and like the mechanics of the gears of life which creates this kind of two-dimensional separation within things with ultimately, if you wind it back, is wildly inaccurate. And then I, I wonder yeah, what I the just, process of... Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's, it's funny because it's... <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's funny you say all those things. I'm not, I don't disagree. And I will just say that like, 
new if you follow the newtonian physics line out and i'm not going to go to quantum because i re- like <laughs> I, I think when most people you know my friend andrew hessel says when most people use the word quantum physics what they actually mean is magic fairy dust mm. and just the words are but if you go into just complexity science mm-hmm. which is sort of where, where where physics has ended up as well and it's also where we sort of enter the picture because the brain is a complex machine as well um that you know that kind of intermeshed ecosystem the butterfly effect alone just sort of tells us how tightly things are linked blacks blonde theory all these sort of complexity science-based you know theories that have sort of been poking it into into culture over the past 20 30 years all sort of show the same thing and of course if you do want to go into quantum physics quantum clearly shows shows the same thing so it's funny because the physics goes there too but not at the cartesian newtonian level you just have to follow the physics through the 20th and into the 21st century and you end up right there yeah yeah i feel like there's like a path to come back to um that since that 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 sensation of unicity or connection to all or if i am pouring some sludge into a river i'm pouring some sludge into my bloodstream like eventually it's going to be coming back to either me or to my family or to my friends or to people that i don't know that maybe i'll know at some point and it's it's and then this gets into more eastern stuff of like karma like if you send a poisonous dart out away from you you know it it butterfly effects circulates around you know and eventually it comes you know, back to your individual body. And so coming to a point where, where, like, I wonder what the path for a person to come to a point to truly develop empathy and compassion for all, because I think within that, as we, as we're, as we, we come to that point, it's like truly developing empathy and compassion for ourselves. And we, it's like a two-way street. I think through the active practice of engaging with place, you know, putting ourselves in someone else's moccasins and, you know, feeling, feeling through them, we can have a deeper connection to ourselves and through actively engaging well, a deeper connection with ourselves, it goes the other direction. So, so what, yeah, I mean, let, like to amplify what you said. So I have, you know, I've been meditating for God, I'm old at this point, 30 years, um, a long freaking time. And I've used almost every system available out there. And what I never used was to bed in loving kindness meditation. Hmm. It just like, it just, I don't, it, it, it felt weird. It was like, oh, you're praying for other people. It's, it's, and the funny thing about Tibetan loving kindness meditation is, is the closest thing you can find to a, like a Christian system, it's just something that is like very Judeo Christian as well, where like you actually pray for people. It's the same, like the practice is literally the same. This is, um, and it's an empathy development, development practice. But the point I want to, that you were talking about is learning more about yourself. In my experience, I don't know if this is everybody's experience, though I've talked to a lot of people about this, and I'm not the only one who has discovered this. Out of 30 years of meditating and mantra meditations and visualizations and like every different system that you could possibly play with, loving kindness, when I started working with it, taught me like suddenly invisible habits of mine, like really deep habits that automatic behaviors, the stuff that is super hidden that like deep biases kind of thing became more visible quicker and sort of with like less fuss than with any other meditation mindfulness system I've ever used. I was shocked by how much it shook free stuff. In fact, I've been having conversations with neuroscientists about this question for the past eight months, just because I was so shocked by just how effective it was. And I was trying to figure out 
was this because I'm in my 50s and there's an adult development stage. Is this loving kindness meditation? Why would that be compared to others? And, you know, I've been in these conversations for a really long time, but I definitely at a personal level using a, something that is designed to expand empathy um, specifically and compassion. It actually it has done that, but it has certainly taught me more about myself than any other mindfulness practice I've ever played with. What is how what, what's the practice that you engage with? There's um, you can find a billion different versions online, but it is very simply you start out. And it's essentially you start out praying for yourself. So it's, there are four phrases or three phrases that get used some variation of you say you start out saying and focus on your heart and think it starts off with may I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be loved. And then you sort of visualize that spreading out from your heart, feeling your body, do that three or four times for yourself. Then you think of somebody you love deeply, your mother, your best friend, and you, may they be well. And the goal is to recognize that all beings, all life forms have all these same foundational desires. We all want to be healthy, right? Well, we all want to be happy. We all want to be peaceful. We all want to be loved. It's foundational between all living beings. And so you start with yourself, you go to somebody that you love deeply and you really feel the law, your, what you felt for yourself flowing into them. Then you think of a anonymous stranger, just somebody you see on the street or you know, have no feelings for, you're neutral for, then you move to somebody you're having difficulties with. Mm. This could be somebody you hate or this could be just you know, an argument with a coworker and you're just trying to sit. And then you move on to, you know, depending on how long you wanna go, um, most will then move you on to the planet as a whole and all it is is just a recognition that literally for the reasons we mentioned earlier neurobiologically we all have the base same basic you know foundational emotions we have all the same basic social emotions we all have similar minds that do similar things we have these are foundational needs for all creatures and uh that's the practice it is and it, it's there's christian versions where you know you're just pray i'll, I'll pray for you hon and it works the same way and uh but that's what it looks like. And the language changes depending on there's five or six different Tibetan systems and whatever. But that's essentially what they and when you hear Richie Davison or other uh, psychologists and neuroscientists talk about compassion, inducing, yeah. that's what they're talking about. It's the same. It's the same practice. And I resisted it because it's not like focusing on your breath or any, like it's a total it's very different. And yeah, it took me a, a while to believe it would work. And it's funny because I think to bring it back to Devil's Dictionary, I think one of the reasons I wrote Devil's Dictionary, and I, and I, don't, I don't know if you get this in, in, in your reading, but I, like, I wanted people, I wanted to put people in a world where like empathy for all was part of the world. So you didn't have to go like wrap your head around trying to figure out, you had to go, you know, it's a fun, exciting thriller, but you had got to live in a world where empathy for all was part of, it's not everywhere in society, but for you to watch the society, it's sort of foundational. So you get to see what that looked like. Yeah. And, you know, to, to bring it home, just like to our current issues, you talk to most psychologists, neuroscientists, et cetera, and you talk about issues like climate change or, or species die off, right? Things we were talking about earlier and say, well, you know, why are these things happening? One of the things that we know is that humans have a perceptual bottleneck, right? We take in our senses gather about 11 million bits of information a second. Consciousness is like 2,000 outputs and awareness, what we can pay attention to is like a couple hundred bits. 
It's a very small thing. So most of the world gets filtered out and edited out. And work from the 50s forward has shown that like, hey man, humans, we, we live in boxes. We stare at boxes. I am right now staring at two boxes inside a box, inside a bigger box, inside a box, right? And so the brain goes, oh crap, box world, that's what's important. And it starts filtering out the natural world. So talk to psychologists, why are we faced up against like these giant environmental challenges and why, like, why didn't we just solve them ahead of time? It's because we can't see or perceive or care about the natural world. We don't have this empathy for all. So if we're going to solve these challenges, that's kind of the mind shift that sort of needs to take place. Yeah. There's obviously technological solutions, and I've written about a lot of those in Faster and Abundance and Bold and Tomorrowland. And there's peak performance solutions to, to like how we can get better at solving these things. And I've written about that. But this is sort of like the empathy that in the worldview that you get in Devil's Dictionary is sort of, I think, the missing piece in that equation. I feel like the each person has access to a certain like figurative aperture of the way that we perceive the world, whether we're focused more on the, the, the background or the foreground. And for the most part, modernity, like modern people, were very subject focused. And the containment of the background that the subject resides within and is indivisible from kind of gets lost on us. And so there's really, yeah, there's really cool cultural stuff because it's very cultural, right? Like, like you're right, but, um, and, it, and, and, and how you grow up, right? There's some nature stuff. Like basically like we shape perception, nature, genes do it a little bit, but how we, how we grew up and they've got all kinds of cool eye tracking stuff where you put different people from different cultural upbringings and you show them scenes and you can track where their eyes go and what they're seeing and what they're not seeing. And it gets really, it gets really interesting when you actually start to realize that like the stuff that they're not seeing, they're literally, it's invisible. They're, it's literally not there, right? Yeah. It gets into those, that 11 million bits of information that you're constantly processing. Yeah. That it's below and, and, but, and it's more, it's way, so, and for neuroscientists who are listening to this, they're, they're now mad at me because it's only the outside sentences. We actually internally, right? Like voice in your head, all the shit you're thinking about it. We generate way more bits of information per second than the 11 million we're gathering. So that number is much higher. And there's like the bottom up internally generated stuff is much bigger than actually what we gather outside. It's weird, but that, you know, neuroscientists get mad when you get that fact wrong. So I wanted to point that out. Something that you mentioned earlier that I find interesting is kind of like a philosophical question in a way is the, the value or lack thereof of hate. So you mentioned like, you know, having empathy, compassion for the things that you hate in quotations, or meant, I mean, that was a part of the words you said, you said other words as well. That's a very interesting concept, like to hate. I, I wonder, do you feel like there's some evolutionary value? To hate, yeah, that's, so that's, that's interesting. Well, the, the, the quick and dirty answer is there has to be. Uh, the, the hate would be a hell of a spandrel, like an accident <laughs> of evolution. That would, like, that's right. It's got to, you got to think it serves some kind of evolutionary purpose. And here's what I can tell you. And this is sort of one of the reasons people, like, people have gotten some of this stuff wrong recently. The human brain automatically does us them divide. Because the, whenever the uh, whenever any living creature encounters another living creature, it asks a foundational question: Is this thing like me or not like me? 
if it's like me, maybe I can mate with it. Maybe I can befriend it. If it's not like me, maybe I can eat it. Or maybe it's going to try to eat me and I should run away from it, right? So this is a foundational question that we ask automatically and us them. And the brain is always looking to make that division. And how do we expand our sphere of caring, to use the psychological term? It's empathy, right? It starts out very tightly focused family, and then it expands outward. Um, and empathy is how we expand it outward. This is sort of built in, right? Hate would strike me as sort of the opposite. It's how we shrink that sphere of caring. Certainly, fear shrinks our sphere of caring. Anger shrinks it. Like it, they, they get smaller and smaller. Um, hate seems to be working in the same direction. Like, does it serve a biological function? Maybe. Certainly gives us something to push back against, to mm. try to rise above, I think. And, you know, would we like to stamp out, like all those things, stamp out hate? All Yes, of course we would. But maybe, like, from an, from a spiritual perspective or an evolutionary perspective, maybe it's good to be able to push back and, and, and know what that is. You know, people always talk to me about how I want to live in a permanent flow state. And I always point out that you don't actually. If you lived in a permanent flow state, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a big deal. Yeah. It'd be just how you live, right? Like you wouldn't notice it. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be quite banal. It, would, it, would, it wouldn't be the flow exactly. state The difference is flow is not average right. normal life. So when you're in <laughs> flow, you're like, oh my God, this is so special. It's not like average normal life. But if there was no, right? So the information is sort of in the difference between the states, right? Mm -hmm. And I think something similar in terms of like hate and, you know, so on that level, yes, uh, you ask an interesting question. I mean, I certainly, and it's funny because, you know, one of the things that's in Devil's Dictionary they might remember is there's, you know, there's a whole group of empathy for all people who like think equal rights for animals. And there's a whole other side to it, right? Where there's a humans first movement where they're like, no, 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 keep humans pure, right? And because I think more and more as we, you know, evolve into this environmentally friendly world that we have to move into to survive as a species, though we're going to start to see rifts like that that things like that are are going to happen and you'll get it technology will do it because there's already like human animal hybrids there's a whole bunch of like like punk rock geneticists who are trying to create cat's eyes for people because mm. it's like going to be a goth fetish or something you like that stuff is already going on and you don't think when like humans start showing up with animal dna sort of woven into their you know gene code and this is stuff that like genetically will be possible within the next 20 to 30 years like it's we're, we're going to move in that direction one way or another and then you get a whole like other level of like hate and new possibilities for like that stuff and so one of the things i i sort of think about in the book and i and i, and I like about where, what we've talked about in these conversations is like these divisions aren't going to go away because they're baked into who we are as as, spe as human as species as, as just living creatures but now that we're learning how to sort of like weaponize empathy and really use it as a tool, and there's lots of different ways to get at it, and we're having a lot of these conversations out loud, it, you know, I think it prepares us in something better for like, you know, maybe we, the future actually can be better than the present in that way. Yeah, something interesting happens, at least it's happening for me during this conversation, when you ob objectively discuss the, the like the unspeakable thing, like I hear myself and I say, I even say the word hate. I can like, I have all sorts of stories 
you know, and filters around what that means and what it does to me. It makes me feel contracted and all these different things. But via discussing it and placing it on the table without fear, you know, or resistance from the thing and being able to no, it's funny. I mean, because I had to say you, you like nobody's actually ever, I think, in a podcast ever asked me a question about hate, and I did the same thing. I was like, oh, I was like, really? Like we got to go here? Okay, but you're you you are like. I don't know if it neuters it, you know what I mean, yeah, at all. Um, and especially like, you know, I think we've all, we, we've seen too, just too many visible examples of what hate can look like recently. I think like a little too much with that. And God, there's a visceral reaction, visceral reaction to that word. Mm-hmm. And a, like that, you feel that constriction. You're not wrong. Yeah. I'm with you. But the, but the fear of the word, and this is kind of like what comedians, like comedians role in culture, like the sacred clown or the gesture in the king's court is to be able to speak totally. the unspeakable. And so you can say the things to the king that no one else can say because you're just, oh, it's just, just jokes, you know, but it's actually layered with, with deep truth that no one else was permitted to speak. You know, and so I think that when we when we live in a culture like a cancel culture in quotations or where there's, you know, there's resistance to be able to say certain things. And I think my feeling is it leads actually to long term problems. Like at first it's like, cool, we'll just smash that down, not talk about it. But I feel like that leads to, you know, like like a almost like a like a cancer developing in a way like it, it wasn't able to expose to the light we weren't able to discuss it and have the conversation and let it breathe and so it just and gets some dashed of it is the a rug. little like some of it is so i'll give you a weird one there's like you know there's words that we're, we're, we can't use anymore and some of those words you're sort of like oh thank god thank god we finally moved past using these terms and then there's like other there's questions of cultural appropriation mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm Jewish. So other people speaking Yiddish back to me, that's not, I'm not offended by that, right? When my black friends come up to me and start speaking Yiddish to me, I love that. I'm like, oh my God, you bothered to like learn enough about my culture that we're like, I think that's great. And like, so there's some of that in terms of like how we actually develop as cultures where like that language appropriation is what's supposed to happen in terms of how we can use language to develop empathy. And so some of what we're trying to stamp out, like I understand the intentionality behind it and the intentionality is like, you applaud that. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know where you're trying to go with this, but you're literally like, there are tools, biological tools, language appropriation, sort of how that works, that was sort of designed for that. Like that's how we've done this culturally for a, a very long time. We assimilate other cultures and other languages and like blend it all together. And that's what happens. And that's how, you know, that's sort of how it works. And it's interesting. I'm not saying that has to be the only way, or maybe that's not the right way, but biologically there's a reason it happens that way. And it's interesting in cancel culture that they're pushing hard on that. And I don't like, I don't have a, I don't have an opinion yet. And I don't know enough yet, but I look at it and go, huh, I think that's like, I think you're pushing against how the biology was designed to work. And I usually, if you're trying to produce something, it's easier to work with biology than against it. Yeah, it feels like cultural appropriation, to use that as, as, as an example. With anything, it's not what you do. It's, it's like why you do it and how you do it and all the things. So it's what's behind it. But in a way, the way that you're describing it now, and I'm only thinking about this for the first time, 
cultural appropriation in certain instances could be like a, a very immature expression of or, or attempt at walking in someone else's moccasins. Yeah, that's, that, well, that's the exact point. Like that is language is so human beings have this we creativity, like we turn thoughts into things. And that's not just this amorphous process out there. There's actually a, a, a pro at first the thought has to get crystallized in language and then it can become a thing. Language is a way station on the way into the on the way into the world. So like when you're stripping out that step and you know tinkering with it in, in, in weird ways, you're changing how we do how like we evolve to do certain things. And, and again, I'm not saying good or bad. Like we can of course surpass our biology and maybe in a lot of cases we need to, but it's interesting to me. Like it's mm. like there's just there's a lot of discuss this discussion isn't over is my point. You know what I mean? Like, like the, we haven't seen the last word yet because we're trying to do a thing, which is how do we make society more egalitarian, more fair, more equal, more empathetic, so that those kinds of things and language plays a role in it. And I'm not 100% certain that policing language in the way that, it, that we've seen over the past year is the perfect solution. I'm not saying it's not, but you know, uh, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely, I don't think the discussion is over. I'm going to take a moment and share something that I found to be invaluable for my own health, the health of my friends, family, and even the environment that is going through my home and replacing some of the toxic chemicals that exist within household products, such as, I'm not going to name any particular companies, but things you clean your windows with, things you clean your countertops with, uh, detergents, um, also things like perfumes, things of the sort. The air inside our homes can be up to 500 times more polluted than outdoor air. That is largely from us being doused in these chemicals from household products. It also includes things like flame retardants and things of the sort, aggregates and dust. Very important to keep your home clean and replace any toxic chemicals with some good stuff. And that's what we got with Branch Basics. I'm very excited to be teamed up with Branch Basics. They are an amazing company and they essentially replace those household products. And uh, they are fragrance-free, plant and mineral-based, free of harmful preservatives, biodegradable, non-GMO, either even gluten and tree nut free, if that's relevant to you. And they're also not tested on animals. So you just get a handy dandy concentrate bottle. And then you, from that, you can create with different ratios, various different cleaners throughout the house essentially replacing laundry detergent replacing um, any type of like window cleaners or all-purpose sprays and things of the sort i really love this stuff i think it is an amazing product and you guys are going to get a ton of value from it so all you gotta do is go to links.branchbasics.com slash align podcast and you'll get 15 percent off all starter kits that is links.branchbasics.com slash line podcast spelled L-I-N-K-S period B-R-A-N-C-H-B-A-S-I-C-S dot com slash align podcast. You get 15% off on all starter kits and uh, make your home a happier, healthier place to live. So in the devil's dictionary, most recent book, you, there's two in the, in the, the beginning, it talks about two different, essentially like psychedelics, I guess you could call them. Mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. one, I don't know how to pronounce it, it's like Siech Tabor. Siech Tabor. Siech Tabor. The, the term comes from the, 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 it's borrowed from the, the book Dune. 
Uh, and uh, that's an empathy expanding psychedelic, right? That literally, this, it basically gives people the same empathy that the, the lead character Lion Zorn has. And that's, and then there's Evo, which is, yeah. so the way uh, drug culture has always developed is like what one generation thinks is the like cutting edge cool right in the 60s was just acid mushrooms and nobody did DMT because that was the scary, crazy drug. And today, like in counterculture, like, mushrooms has sort of like replaced marijuana and like you know what people casually use and dmt is also being used like it goes up the ante goes up the high gets weirder the ante goes up and so i was like okay if we're gonna you know we've got this first drug if it's gonna get surpassed a generation later by another drug i introduced evo which is a drug that allows you to trip evolution so you literally go feel like geological time and see get the feeling for how species evolve over eons and eons. And those are the two drugs. And I was interested in them because we've talked about this a lot, but all altered states of consciousness, right? They expand ecological awareness and cross-species empathy and nature relatedness and, you know, all that stuff. So it was a natural tool for if you wanted to create a, a widespread mind shift in society, a psychedelic was it was a, a, a couple of new psychedelics were uh, an interesting tool for that. So that's that's why they're in the book. I think that's I, 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 I think it's such an interesting thing because the having those those divisions in there, the most of us when we think of most of, of these, like all the things that, that I already mentioned, breath work practices or just like the ego dissolution bucket mm -hmm. typically it's it's the the byproduct of that whether you know your that's your intention or not is greater empathy typically you know you you start to feel maybe you might even jump into someone else in the room and like feel their emotions i'm like oh my god i didn't mm -hmm. know that was a possibility and maybe it's all your projection and you're dreaming you know whatever it is but you start to f feel into other people in a, in a deeper way oftentimes it's an interesting thing to to place the our, our our time scale on the on the menu you know or or, or like our, our our temporal experience on the menu of can i have empathy and compassion and association and connection to not just other sentient beings in the present moment but also my ancestry like across yeah and across history time. and and like like well it's also even if you think about like empathy for a, so you know i spend a, I, i'm out in tahoe and i'm a lot in the mountains a lot and you know you've got like mountain like the western juniper tree cedars um that they call it's like they could be a thousand years old like i go skiing at, at heavenly valley or, or kirkwood and i'm in the forest with like 500 year old i've got i'm surrounded by beings that predate my country right and it, it's a it when you and that's a really strange like just think about like life at tree scale is hard enough and then try to take it to like the evolutionary scale. I certainly like, I was also trying to imagine like what kind of psychedelic would I most want to try, right? And one where I get to trip evolution. Yeah, I would like to try that. That would be very interesting. What's the value in tripping evolution? I think there's a great value in geological time and in, um, and I think a lot of Stuart Brand and Danny Hillis and all the people involved in the Long Now Foundation have really talked about this, like, what does it mean to think with 10,000 year time horizons? And they built the 10,000 year clock in the, in the desert here in Nevada to kind of get people to think on those like geological scales. And there, this is kind of like real long term thinking. 
And so that to me is what I think would be the advantage. I can't tell you what the advantage is because I don't think I can uh, think along those scales. But I will also say like, I've, uh, I've been lucky enough to spend a bunch of time with uh, both paleontologists and astronomers who regularly think in those scales, right? They think in vast distances, but like, you know, they understand that when you're looking at the stars, you're looking back in time. And my brain doesn't normally do that, right? I don't, that's not how I, like I can do it intellectually, but it's just intellectually. I don't like, I, I can't do it emotionally. I don't, um, I can't feel inside statements like that. I, I know what they mean, but I know people who, who live inside that world and it would be neat to be able to do that. I wonder if in that world, are you from the Dan Everett that don't don't sleep, there are snakes, I think is how, how, his, yeah, how his book sure. is, is called. He sure. stayed with, I believe the Paraha people is what yeah you know you got that right totally right yeah and he his book's right there oh it's nice just like over my right hand highly shoulder. recommend yeah, yeah. to anybody i think it's such an interesting yeah, cool book. really like just amazing concepts in there um, yeah the uh, the the anti-chomskyan the argument against chomsky what is um, the argument and that argument is is sort of still going on is uh is is there an innate grammar kind of, it, it was the linguistic side of it right yeah. And so, but one of the things that's interesting in there, which is kind of like contrarian to, to what we're talking about right now, uh, like the potential maybe value in being able to access different timelines and such from the Praha people's perspective, based off of what Dan Everett translated, they have no concept of time beyond this lifetime. And so if something didn't happen in, and that's probably not completely accurate, I have a feeling they probably have a deeper like sense of things than what was described in the book. But as far as like discussing events and things of the sort, ideas of Jesus or Gandhi or Buddha or Martin Luther King or dinosaurs or any of that, it's a non-event to a Paraha person because it, I've never seen it. And what you see with, with those people is they happen to smile a lot, like more than anybody. And so like their, their way of, of measuring, and I'm butchering probably a lot of this information, but essentially they, they're, they seem to be like one of, if not perhaps the happiest culture based on the amount of time that they spend kind of like laughing and smiling and in, in, in that in that state. And one of the interesting concepts within that, among lots of other things, is their their perspective of time is essentially if I didn't see it, if it's not here, it's just it's not even on the plate. And so I wonder if by understanding deeper, you know, having a deeper understanding of all the astronomies and evolutions and histories and all the things if it does lead to a greater sensation of satisfaction and contentment and, and like happiness in quotations kind of a cheap word or if perhaps it just adds more complexity all i can say on that one is it's another perspective and we know from a neurobiological perspective perspective that the multi-perspectival thinking right the ability to see things from multiple perspectives is one of those capacities that that does come on with age um, really starts to develop in our 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, it's sort of one of the superpowers of aging, actually. And uh, it is neurobiologically the foundation of, of, of what is of wisdom. Of the, you know, and that's an actual psychological characteristic that can be measured. So it, I don't know about overall life satisfaction and, 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 that, and those sorts of things. And you know, I, laughter and smiling could be a marker for happiness, which is the first tier of of well-being, but there's above that is a high, you know, is enjoyment. That's a high flow lifestyle. And above that is purpose. And so there's, there's levels. And I, I wonder about that. And I wonder if based on that argument, wisdom, 
would be the opposite of kind of what you're talking about, right? But we definitely, with the more perspectives we get, the more the wiser we get, and that's not surprising. That's what we get from empathy too. It's why empathy and wisdom are so linked as as kind of core characteristic traits. Um, we got to wrap up soonish at the end of the conversations. So, so the last so the last thing this goes to the Align community. Um, it's totally free. People can jump over there. It's alignpodcast.com/slash/community. And uh, final question that's going to go specifically over there is. In our culture, I think we're pretty well inundated with knowledge, information, and the cultivation of wisdom. I feel like is oh, it's a it's a it's it's not quite as easy to contain, you know. And and you can't you can't just like read wisdom in a book, you know. It's something. It's like so. I, I wonder your perspective. Like first, defining what is wisdom from your perspective, and how does one cultivate wisdom based off of your time in this life. Hope you guys have dug this conversation. If you would like to hear this response to this question, you can jump over to alignpodcast.com slash community. It is absolutely free to join as a place where we can communicate with each other and also share content that we are not sharing anywhere else. So jump over to alignpodcast.com slash community to learn more. Thank you so much, man. I would highly recommend people develop that a little wisdom get into I it's something that I've been working on myself is is enjoying fiction more and like being open to not just just consuming facts something that I feel like I have a lot of growth in that department um, but the devil's dictionary is out when is the devil's dictionary out what's the, the it's out okay, devil's dictionary is out stuff. amazing cool so that's obviously out when when this when this podcast comes out and I'll include all your information in the outro if there's anything else you want to share I know you got to go but I just appreciate you so much, man. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you Great so much. To see you again. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. If you did, you can tag myself at Align Podcast on the gram. I'm also on TikTok, by the way. We started TikTok recently. We were posting one video per day, sometimes even two, and it's really cool. I'm I'm really enjoying that experience and that process. So jump over, check out Align Podcast on TikTok if you are so inclined. And we're also on YouTube. Uh, YouTube is also a Align Podcast. So it's all Align Podcast, different content on each channel, and I'm really excited to get to share it all with you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. That's it. That's all. I'll see you next week.